Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hey! Hi! So, for those of you who are following along, we are recording this episode much closer to the air date because Kathy's back. She was out of town for a bit. I was. And I came back to much... Well, uh, that's not true. We had about a week and a half of rain when I got back, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah. LA's finally getting sunshine again. Yeah, I never thought I'd raining. have to say that. <laughs> no, we we aren't complaining, <laughs> although we are a little bit. You know, everybody's reality is different. We're not used to having a ton of rain, although everything is so beautiful now. We're also not used to having a ton of greenery. No, we're not. Like the hills are not brown for a minute. Right. <laughs> They're usually brown over here. Uh, but today on the show, we are going to discuss the movie Women Talking that was nominated for Oscars and, and won a couple, I believe, this last year, and the true story that it is based on, which is pretty tragic and very different, of course, than the movie. Just so everyone knows, in case you didn't know, the movie is based on a book And the book is written by a woman who was part of a Mennonite community. But the book and the movie are very, very fictionalized. So just understand that that you're not... When you're watching the movie, one of the things that the filmmaker, Sarah Polly, talks about is that when she read the book, she was inspired by it, but that she very specifically wanted to use her imagination. How can I recreate this conversation that's in the book? Because there is a long, many scene conversation that happens in a barn between the women that star in this movie. And her inspiration was, how do I get some of the best actresses in the world to sit in a room and have this conversation Mm -hmm. about ideology? more about the decision-making that, that, that was going on and the ideology that was happening in the movie, which, as we talk about the true story, you'll, you'll probably start to understand. So let me go back just a second and talk about the author of the book. She talks about how she read about the true story and that when she wrote the book, the story just wouldn't take its claws out of her, that the colony was named after her home province of Manitoba. It was much more traditional, but the foundation was the same. So she imagined the Bolivian women as her kin, even giving them her family names and set them in a hayloft in the debate to debate three options, do nothing, fight, or leave. This was very fictionalized. This was very much from her imagination. And then Sarah Polly, who did the movie, talks about how she was inspired by the book and took the book and took some liberties with the book and then engaged with her imagination to have these conversations to make it more of a transcendent story for all of us to talk about 
do nothing, leave, you know, those kinds of choices, which I think if you see the movie, those kinds of choices can be very universal. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what she was trying to do. Mm -hmm. But let's talk a little bit about the real story. 130 women and girls of the Mennonite colony in Manitoba colony who claimed that from 2005 to 2009, they were repeatedly raped by men in their own community. And if you don't know anything about the Mennonite community, this particular community is in Bolivia. And one of the reasons why it's in Bolivia is because they're ancestors for generations and decades were trying to find places that they could live to be Mennonites and not have a government or any kind of structure like overlording them and not allowing them to live the way they want to live. And so ultimately, instead of, you know, their roots are in Canada and Germany, but ultimately moving into Mexico and then Mexico started to get wind of it. And then over the decades or hundreds of years, they, then they started to move into South America. And that's why you get these colonies in and around and all over South America. And this one was in Bolivia is because they can live there with very little oversight and the act, the government allows them to live and rule their own people, like take care of their own crime, make their own laws, all the stuff. Like they just are allowed to live however they want. And mm-hmm. and obviously that's one of the many reasons I'm sure we'll get into about like why this could have happened mm-hmm. is because they're just left to do whatever the fuck they want. Right. Some of the things about Mennonites that, you, you know, people may or may not know is that this is a, the horse drawn buggies and they work in fields, they're farmers, they have a milk production business, and they pretty much work from day to night, and that's all they do in order to survive because they don't allow cars. The, the very strict Mennonites don't allow cars and electricity. Uh, the children are, little girls are allowed to go to school until 12. Little boys are allowed to go to school until 13. The only reason why boys can go a year longer is because the year that you are 12, you go to school for budgeting and business. And girls are not considered to need those things because they are not going to be business people. The boys are going to be the business people and the girls are going to have babies take care of the home, et cetera. Very traditional values. They're also not allowed to engage, kids aren't allowed to engage in like music or sports or television. And honestly, from what I read, most of them aren't even really Bible literate because, Mm -hmm. you know, the structure of the community is there's, you know, a council of eight or nine men that rule the community and they're, they're there for life. They rule Mm -hmm. for life. It's not a democracy. And a lot of the Bible teachings and the discussion of Bibles comes through those men. Right. Whereas the church that they go to, there's like some small prayers, but it's not big on reading the Bible because of course, if, if they read the Bible, they would learn that no women don't have to wear two braids and mm-hmm. these clothes, you know, like none of that's in the Bible. They would yeah. figure it out. <laughs> they they've, fil- out. they've filtered probably what verses or what areas of, you the bet. Bible, but even more so than a lot of other faiths do. Very specific to being able to back up you bet. and justify. Yeah, The girls speak what, um, the uh, all, the whole community speaks what's called low German, but 
the girls never learn Spanish. The women, so they're living in Bolivia. And don't speak Spanish. And they don't speak Spanish. So that, you know, you can see how that's not going to help either. Well, in 12th grade is an 8th grade, edu- 7th or 8th grade education. They're not questioning anything. No, no, not generally speaking. So what ended up happening is that women started to wake up in 2005, between 2005 and 2009. The women in the community started to wake up feeling like a massive hangover, like a massive headache, blood, mud, dirt all over their sheets, clothes strewn about. Sometimes they're in their clothes, sometimes they're not. And the men too, because what en- what we ended up finding out is that there were, specifically the case involves eight or nine men that were part of this community that were using a spray to drug a whole families. They would spray it through the windows and they would drug whole families and then rape the women, the daughters. Jesus. Uh, as young as three three, five, eight-year-olds, and then all the way up to 65. And so there are whole families. I read some interview interviews around whole families where the man would sit down and say, yeah, my wife, my two daughters, my sister, my grandmother, my three nieces have all been raped all throughout this community. And, and repeatedly, I and would repeatedly, imagine. And repeatedly, yes. And some of them repeatedly. And then there were other women that talk about like that never, it never happened to them at all. That's very frightening, right? Because you don't know if it's going to be you. And apparently everyone in the community really knew this was happening because what happened is one woman woke up one day and she had woken up in the middle of it and become very conscious because there are other women that sort of said like, yeah, I would wake up and I would think I dreamt it and, you know, like it was very subconscious, that kind of thing. But this one woman woke up and caught two men in her house and then fell back to sleep, of course, but then alerted someone, like reported it and said, here's what's happening to me. And I think it's happened more than once, et cetera. And she wasn't believed. There was a whole fiction around women having very strong imaginations. Mm-hmm. And that was one piece of the story. Another piece of the story was you're doing this to cover up an affair that you've had and you don't want anybody to know that you've been soiled or whatever. Mm-hmm. Another one was that these were the crimes of the devil, that you know, you've been bad in some way and haven't repented sins, and so this is the devil visiting upon you. So there were a lot of ways that the community was gaslighting these women, and it was happening for a very long time, And I think another thing that further complicates this is that there is rampant incest and sexual abuse in this community. Come to find out, you know, now that this community has been sort of invaded by reporters and the story and the criminal justice system and everything, like they've been very, very exposed. You wonder the amount of inbreeding, too. A lot. I mean, I I think a lot. You know, what, what, what they talk about now is that, well... You know, there was always brothers and sisters. There was always fathers and daughters. There was sexual abuse. There was situations with grandfathers and grandchildren and, and this kind of thing. And the way the community would deal with that is uh, there was this one story I read about a grandfather who had been caught sexually abusing his granddaughter. And what they do in this community, apparently, is that when you are caught doing something 
wrong or against God, they will talk to you. And if you confess to it, take ownership over it, and then and say you would like to do better and repent and, and that you've, you know, done an awful thing and you want to be better, et cetera, they will excommunicate you for like a week or two. And then when you're done with your quote unquote sentence, they will talk to you again and say, you know, would you like to be welcomed back into the community? Or do you promise not to do whatever again, et cetera, et cetera. And if you go jump through all of those hoops, then they will allow you back. So you have to sell your soul <laughs> to them. All you have to do is promise. Yeah. And you know, from your work with sexual predators, they're not being taken away from any of the kids. The triggers are all right around them. Yeah. Their victims are right there. Mm -hmm. So then here's another thing that happens. So let's say, because you know this is what would happen, is that then grandpa or whoever does it again, mm -hmm. gets caught, et cetera. The little girl says, you know, grandma, grandpa is doing X, Y, Z to me. And then the council gets together and excommunicates you, right? Mm -hmm. So this is, so the second time they excommunicate you forever. So what that looks like, though, is you can't buy anything at their store. You're not helped with any work. Your kids aren't allowed to go to the school and all this. So what ends up happening is you eventually just have to leave. That is the abuser and the victims leaving together. Oof. Right? So the family is excommunicated and they cut you off. Right. So the family has to leave to survive. So you're sending the whole the victims quote, and the unquote, perpetrators together. Away. That and that's sorry to back up when I said yeah. when I said um they're selling their soul. I wasn't referring to the perpetrators. I was referring to the the women that were gaslit and had to essentially either take the blame for lying or make like they had to give up every part of who they were. Yeah. To go along and coexist and not be punished. But then there was no incentive to do anything right either. No, no. I mean, the women for sure were definitely in a situation. Many of the women were in a situation where they would wake up in pain, naked, and then they would blame their husband. They didn't know what happened. And wasn't there like a series of sexually transmitted diseases and stuff that were going mm -hmm. around that weren't being treated because there was such a denial yeah. of this is not happening to you. For years, they were all trying to deny it, women and men, and you mm -hmm. understand why. You understand even the women were blaming their husbands and the devil and all mm -hmm. of this because they didn't understand what was going on, and also they didn't want to think that of their people. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to believe that people you know, these men that you know, are doing this to you. But a lot of women did believe it and were the ones that were sounding the bells and being told that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't true and it's not happening. And even if it was, you know, it, because in this community, you're married as a virgin, right? So you had all these little girls who were no, who were being raped and these young women who were being raped. And now it's like, Oh, now you're not going to let them get married. And it's still going, here's the thing. Okay, so what ended up happening is that the women really started to advocate and the men in the community started to catch on to what was going on and started to believe them. And, you know, obviously husbands, brothers, people who love these women were outraged and they ended up 
catching one of the men, that man confessed to them and then sold out all his friends. He's been doing it and this person has been doing it. Not just me, this person and this person and this person. So then this rabble rouse of men that are trying to fix this problem go and round up all of these men within their community and hold them like in a barn or a basement or something, probably a barn, for several days to try to get them to confess so that they can do their version of court, right? Where they get them to confess, they have them apologize, they tell them to stop it. You know, they wanted to go through their system, but then what ended up happening is all the men just denied it. Well, and there's no stigma around it. So what is apologize? It doesn't take that much to apologize if there's no shame around something. So the men just, yeah, exactly. And the men just didn't admit it. And so then they kept them there for days and days and days. Oh my God, like interrogation? Yes. And so they threatened, they finally were threatening them with lynchings. They were threatening them with all sorts of things. And so the men finally confessed. So then this council of men who are in this community who are trying to sort this out realize they're in too deep like okay this is we can't do this so then they turn them over to the authorities and that's when the whole world found out about it and then the men were tried and convicted here's the problem well, there's a lot of problems <laughs> <laughs> here's this here's the problem still i guess i would say is that all of that happened but as the reports that I was reading in 2014, 15, et cetera, you know, reporters were going back and checking in. And of course, now that there's been this very visible movie made, it's still happening in the community. Like that all happened and all of those men went to prison, but the community didn't stop doing what they do even though the veterinarian who originally created the spray for them also went to prison. He got a lesser sentence because he wasn't actually raping people. He just created the damn drug that they used and the spray. But anyway, he went to prison, but it kept happening and keeps happening. In other words, the sexual abuse, the violence, the incest, and the raping with drug use is still going on. It just continued. Like, yeah, they went to jail, but the there were other men in the community that didn't get caught that just kept doing they it. Just kept doing it. And they're saying too that you know it's not talked about, but that men and boys were getting raped too. There's, I would imagine at the very least, boys and young men were for yeah. sure. Yeah, that, that just makes sense to anybody who knows. Well, if you think about, yeah, absolutely. And if you think about just the power of subjugation, so yes. it's going to be anybody that is considered subordinate, right? Um, right. So if you are, if this is a, a ranking system in within this community, then, you know, a 10-year-old boy or a 16-year-old boy who doesn't have any position of leadership. I mean, all of these women are objects to them. Yeah. So why wouldn't these boys? Yeah. I, I don't think it was a gender thing as much as it was a power thing. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to be in the movie. And I know we've talked explicitly about how the movie isn't a direct portrayal of this, but they address that innocence when they talk about leaving and the women start to have a conversation around, do we take our sons and mm -hmm. do we take, and they're like, but they're just going to grow up and become this. 
That was the you know, and that was like fear. such a sad. You know, it's like Very you're not sad. even going to take your ten year old son because the fear is he's already been tainted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, by this culture. Well, and also the incest and sexual abuse that it was already going on in the communities, and then you add this to it. It's. And and the way the movie ends, I thought, was interesting because this mother wants to take her son. And the son was, like, hiding and refusing to go. Because yeah. the movie is really about them all trying to leave after the convictions and, every you know, everything is discovered. The movie is really, like, these women getting together and then figuring out whether or not they're going to stay, whether or not they're going to do nothing about this, or whether they're going to leave their community. And they ultimately decide to leave. And there's this one woman who's like, my son won't come with. And I'm not leaving my son here with these people. Right. So she drugs him. Right. Yeah. And she takes him with her. Yeah. So there's this real, it's a, it's a, I think from an imaginal perspective and from a metaphorical perspective, the movie is very interesting in just discussion around what to do mm-hmm. in those for, situations. For that, and for that reason, I enjoyed the dialogue. It's a hard, you know, it's heavy. Yeah. It's not, no, you're not going to sit, th- you're not going to sit through it more than once, but it was, I have, you know, Sarah Polly. It's funny because in the '90s she was like a, a whatever kind of fun, yeah. you know, actress in some of those teen movies, like totally. um, young adult '90s movies, and she's really turned into a great director. Yeah, um, I think a lot of people didn't know that she had changed lanes. I I had I didn't know that till recently, and watching this, I'm like, girl, you f- you found your trade. Yeah, she she's was fantastic. And even though Frances McDormand had such a small role, it was such an influential. Oh my gosh, she's always so I know good. She's always, she's Jesus. just to show, show up in a room. She's great, but crazy. Um, the women that they chose and they cast, and many of them were no name, you know, or not well-known. Right. And it was so believable. And I, I think the, the acting was really good. Like it made me feel something. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I think if you don't know anything going in, it's a hard watch because it's slow character driven and it's a bunch of people talking. So if you're going into a movie and you don't know what it is, you, you might be bored. Honestly, you might just be like, well, I don't, who cares? But if you know a little bit, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk a little bit about the true story behind it is if that, if you haven't seen this movie and you, are a true crime enthusiast, meaning you understand and want to know more about uh, criminal pathology and human psychology, which is really honestly what our what our interest in true crime is ultimately about on an intellectual level is wanting to understand people in a different way and our own shadows and figuring out how to not be that person and also how to avoid that person in our lives. I think those are all some of our reasons for being into true crime specifically. Well, I, think, I also think it's important for people to realize that this wasn't that long ago. No, no. Like this is not, we're not talking about a century ago, you no. know, we're not even talking about 20 years ago. Right. Or maybe close to 20 years ago, but. We're not talking about the 70s and 80s, no. right? Like when we it, all talk about serial killers. This but. is very much happening across the globe within our own country, within our own communities, maybe not to this level, but. How it's, would we know? <laughs> it's like when people say, you know, slavery no longer is, exists, certainly does, it's just in a different form. Yeah, so that's kind of where I would like to end this is just a, a short discussion around what what we're seeing here, right? We've what we're seeing here is a restriction on education, 
a restriction with language. It's very much um, a recipe for abuse when you, we look at just a household with you know two people in a relationship or, and maybe some kids and you have an abuser and a victim, this is the kind of things we see. The abuser will restrict uh, education, restrict your comings and goings, restrict your communication. These folks in these communities don't have any way to communicate to the outside world. They don't have cars. They have they can't go anywhere. They'd have to walk. They don't have access to money. The women don't have access to money. They don't have access to the language with which they live around. So once they left, they would not be able to speak to anyone because everyone speaks a different language. They have no way out. The incidences of sexual abuse, incest, control, power, rape, and whatever else is going on, these women are in a situation where they have nowhere, no way out. And these children, think about it this way, in our, in our American Western third world, I mean, a first world country, Kids go to school and even up till 12 or 13, let's say, they go to school and there's teachers, counselors, police, people they would tell these things to. There are people monitoring. We are mandated reporters. There were people, they would be in this community. There's no police. They govern themselves. There's no teachers that are outside the family. There's no inner, there's nobody coming in. There are laws holding people accountable. There are consequences. There's reporting laws. There's CPS. Not that they always do the best, but there are. A kid tells a teacher. Yes. You know, a kid could even tell a neighbor. A kid tells a a friend that's not in the community that it's not happening to. In other words, like some 11 year old girls, friends are all having the same thing happen to them. They don't even know it's wrong. Well, and here's the, the, I mean, there are a lot of issues, but two of the biggest issues in these communities is one, there is the, so if it's told to someone that someone can't do anything because they're powerless and two, cognitive dissonance, finding a justification, finding a reason. So either it's through gaslighting, oh, this didn't happen or it happened because you were bad. So there's, there's no way out. Mm -hmm. So you tell someone it goes nowhere. Yeah. And even after all this happened in their community. And I read a statistic that was like one in four women will be sexually abused before the age of 18 in these communities. Mm. So all of this happens. There's still women living in this community and the women who were abused and harmed and raped go back into this community to live where they live with their children. And the Bolivian law, there was psychological assessments done because they were mandated by Bolivian law to have those done because they were now in a court system as opposed to handling it themselves. So there are court documents around these psychological assessments and every single girl that they interviewed and did an assessment on every single victim had some type of post-traumatic stress. They were recommended for long-term counseling. They were recommended for therapy. And here's what the men said. You were unconscious. So you don't have any psychological damage. Oh my God. And so they never received therapy because they didn't remember. They were drunk, you know, they, they, right. they, they were it, out, so. they were unconscious. Yeah. How could you have any psychological distress if you were 
I don't know, the terror of knowing that you were completely your your person and your psyche and all of that was invaded upon when you were unconscious the knowledge of that itself and they were all talking about how they would come to during so it's not of like, course you know like and you wake up it's like and you're covered roofied. in blood yeah and, and mud no trauma there's no trauma whatsoever no and it's happening to you repeatedly right well and even the women were saying you know that they still think about the rapes every single day. And how about just knowing this is happening to other women and the vicarious Awful. trauma your of kids. just waiting for it to happen to you or your child? There was one story I read where the woman was like, I was raped, my daughters were raped, Jesus. and my daughter doesn't know that I was one of the victims because I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I know I'm not <sighs> talking to her about that. I don't want her to be thinking about that. Wow. I know. It's just. So, you know, we were talking about this before before we started to record, and Kathy was like, wow, you know, the movie is really not as extraordinary as the story. And I get, like, not as incendiary. You know, it's not as they don't go into all of the awfulness of this. And it's bad enough. And it's bad enough. And I, and I completely agree with you that it's not, because it's like, that's why I was kind of punching home the point. It's fictionalized. It was really very much about having this bigger bigger conversation and not just explicating the story but i think it's important to know these awful and horrible details because these kinds of communities exist and they're happening and and a lot of i think maybe it's possible that a lot of people are actually just dealing with this kind of abuse in their own home in not in Bolivia, not in this That's right. Mennonite community. I think it is a bigger story. I think anyone who's gotten to this far in the episode and is a woman who might be dealing with any form of this coercion and control in their relationships, and even if it doesn't extend to this very dramatic and horrific story, there's the similarities. And that's what the movie does do, is talks about the bigger conversation that can be extrapolated to your situation and your situation and this whole community situation agreed so it's important and it's uh, a pretty good movie too yeah it is a good movie yeah and there's also a uh, vice did a two-part little video series that's free online i think it's called uh ghost rapes of bolivia and there's a part one and part two it's free you just google it and uh it'll tell you the story kind of like we just did so thank you so much for listening to this episode of terror talk my name is shannon and i'm kathy sleep safe everyone